Let us pray. This is a prayer for the peace of the world. Almighty God, from whom all thoughts of truth and peace proceed, kindle, we pray thee, in every heart the true love of peace. And guide with thy pure and peaceable wisdom those who take counsel for the nations of the earth, that in tranquility thy kingdom may go forward till the earth is filled with the knowledge of thy love. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, welcome back. The Archbishop is clearly a hard act to follow, but we're going to do our best today. We're John's Gospel, so if you have your Bibles, and again, I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. We're going to concentrate really on one verse today, but we're going to put it in context. The verse we're going to focus on is verse 14, one of the most extraordinary verses, not just in the Bible or the New Testament, but in all of literature, an extraordinary claim. But let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 14, that puts it in context, and then we'll come back and take a look at this extraordinary declaration. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's an old expression that says... Familiarity breeds contempt. And while that's not necessarily the case when it comes to a passage like John chapter 1, verse 14, I will say this, there is a sense in which familiarity breeds apathy. We have heard this verse so many times. In fact, if you've been raised in the church, you've heard it at least once every single year of your life, because this is always a passage that is read at Christmas. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But because we have heard it so many times, and because it is so familiar to us, I think in many people's lives, most people's lives, this is a passage that has lost its power. It has lost its punch. But you need to understand that in the early days of Christianity and in the early days of the proclamation of the gospel, this message that the Word, by whom all things were made, through whom all things were made, for whom all things were made, became flesh, that was an earth-sharing declaration. Nobody had ever heard anything like that before. If you go back and read the early church fathers, those leaders of the church in the early days of Christianity, particularly those who were 
converted out of paganism, one of the things that they always talk about is this message of the Incarnation. This message that at one point in history, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. That is ordinary message, and people in the early days of the church were just absolutely shocked by it. It was a shocking revelation, of course, to Jews, because Jews certainly believed in God. They were His chosen people. He had revealed Himself to them. But one of the things you'll notice about God's revelation of Himself in the Old Testament is that it is always the God of transcendence. It is the God who is far off. It is the God who is up there on Mount Sinai, In thunder and lightning, the whole mountain, we're told, was cordoned off. Not even an animal was permitted to step foot on the mountain. It had to be stoned because God was holy. He was distant. He was removed. And even when God led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, one of the things you'll notice is that when they stopped, that pillar of cloud, that pillar of fire was always outside the camp because God was holy other. He was unapproachable. Nobody could see his face and live. So to be told that at one point in history, the God by whom all things were made, by the sheer power of his word, he brought all things into existence. At one point, that God entered down into creation that we might know him and not merely know about him, but know him personally. That's what John had been talking about just the verses preceding these. He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not, but to all who believed in him. He gave the right to become children of God. Jews could hardly comprehend that. They really didn't have any categories. The same was also true for the Gentiles, for the Greeks as well. Well, They certainly believed in this philosophical idea of the word. When we started our study of John, I pointed out that that's what John is doing. He is drawing from Greek philosophy. We talked about that Greek philosopher Heraclides. He was the one who said that the world was in a constant state of change, constant state of flux. He's the one that said, if you step out of the river, it's not the same river. It's because everything is changing, always moving. And somebody said to him on one occasion, well, they said, if that is true, why does there appear to be order? There may be constant change in the cosmos, but why does there appear to be an ordered change? It doesn't appear to be chaotic. There's no confusion. There seem to be laws that govern the change. And Heraclides said that's because there is a word. Logos is the Greek term. There is a word that controls these things. And what John was doing, he was drawing from that Greek philosophical thought, and he was applying it to the God of the Bible. And he was saying, in the beginning was the Word, this force which orders all things. And that Word was with God, and that Word was God. Now, any Greek up to this point, any Gentile who'd study the Manichaeans or whatever it is, they would have been tracking with Paul or tracking with John up to this point. They would have said, absolutely. But you can almost hear the needle go off the record. You can almost hear the brakes come screeching to a halt. When all of a sudden John says, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now there are two words here that are significant. The first word is flesh. That God became flesh. The Greek word is sarx. Flesh is what you and I got up with this morning. 
It's what we bathed this morning. It's what some of us shaved this morning. Flesh. Flesh which is corruptible. Flesh which gets sick. Flesh which gets diseased. Flesh which gets contaminated. Flesh which contracts cancer. Flesh which ultimately, what? Perishes and dies. To the Jews, to the Greeks, the idea that God, first of all, should come down and be a part of his creation was extraordinary. Gentiles, Greeks, sometimes believed that the gods would masquerade as human beings, but they never in any way limited their deity. But the Christian message is that is exactly what God did. This is echoed not just here in John, but in Philippians. Keep your finger there in John and skip ahead to Philippians for just a moment. Philippians chapter 2, and listen to how the Apostle Paul describes it. Now, Paul is talking to Christians, and he's saying, this is how you ought to live your life. This should be your attitude in terms of your relationships with others. But he compares our attitude with that of Christ, and look at how he puts it. He says, let each of you look not unto his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, verse 6 who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That literally means held on to. But he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, sarks, flesh, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death because that's what happens to the flesh. Even the death on the cross. I've sometimes said, you know, that's the difference between Christ and us, one of the many differences between Christ and us. You and I are willing to let go of something good if we know something better is coming along, don't we? We bought a car not long ago and the reason for it was, you know, they were, they were interested in buying used cars. And this one was beginning to have trouble, the one that we had, so we took it down to the dealer. We traded it in, and listen to this. I got a new car, and the payment was lower than what I'd been paying. So I was willing to let go of the old car for something better, for something newer. We're often willing to do that, aren't we? We're willing to let go of an old house if we've got a better house. We're willing to let go of an old car if we've got a better one. Willing to let go of an old girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it may be, if we know there's a better one on the horizon. That's the nature of human beings. But look at how Paul puts it in Philippians. He said, he was in the form of God. He had the best. There's nothing better. He had everything. He was Lord of the universe, but he let it go, and he took the form of a servant. Greek is doulos, it literally means slave, and he became obedient unto death, even death upon a cross. That was a message that was earth-shattering to Jews, it was earth-shattering to Gentiles, and if you really stop and ponder it for a little while, you discover that it's earth-shattering for us as well. And he did all of this for what end? For what purpose? that we might know him. That's what's meant by that phrase, that we might behold his glory. 
That section of Philippians is referred to by theologians as the great hymn of kenosis. Greek means emptying, self-emptying. God empties himself. We're always looking to fill ourselves up. God empties himself. That's the first word that is of significance, flesh. Here's the other idea that's very significant in that passage, verse 14. And, the fle- and he became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't just become flesh, take on human form, that flesh which is subject to disease and death. He dwelt in our midst. Now, in order to really get the full import of what John is saying here, you have to look at it in the Greek. Now, you don't always have to do this, and I think sometimes when theologians and Bible teachers or preachers are always drawing in on the Greek, sometimes that's just to show off how much we know. But sometimes it really is illustrative, and I'm saying that right now because I'm going to deal with Greek when we get to the sermon. So if you haven't heard the sermon already, I'm not showing off, really. It really is helpful to understand the Greek. In this particular sense, it really is helpful to understand the Greek. You've heard the expression, something gets lost in translation. Well, there is something that's getting lost in the translation here when it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek literally says to dwell among us as in a tent. That's why some literal translations say he became flesh and pitched his tent in our midst. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us. Pitched his tent. Some translations say he tabernacled in our midst. That is the phrase that would have meant so much to any Jew reading the Gospel of John. He tabernacled in our midst. He pitched his tent in our midst. Why was that significant? Because if you remember the Jews, you'll recall that when they were captives in Israel, God had delivered them by signs and wonders and the power of his outstretched arm. And he'd led them out into the wilderness where for 40 years they wandered until they were led into the promised land. You remember that? And every time they would come to a camp, a place where they would stop, they would erect a portable temple in the midst of the camp. And it was called the tabernacle. The tabernacle. So when John says the word became flesh and tabernacle, pitched his tent in our midst, every Jew knew what that meant. It was saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything represented by that tabernacle for those 40 years in the wilderness. So if you really want to understand what John is saying, and again, every word in this first chapter of John is pregnant with significance. If you really want to understand what John is saying, you have to understand a little bit about that tabernacle. That's what it was. It was a structure about 45 feet by 15 feet. It was separated into two parts. It had that outer courtyard that you see there, and there was an intersection. It was made of wood. It could be assembled and disassembled rather quickly, and it was covered with pure white linen. The inner chamber contained the Ark of the Covenant. What was the Ark of the Covenant? It was that container which contained the Ten Commandments. You'll recall that the Ten Commandments had been given to God by, by God to Moses. Moses found the people worshiping the golden calf when he came down the mountains, and he had broken the tablets. But another set had been made, and they were placed in the Ark of the Covenant for safekeeping. So the Ark of the Covenant, symbolic of God's presence, was in the intersection. 
you could see the outer section. There were a number of important things. There was a golden altar of incense where there was constant sacrifices being offered. There was a table of showbread and there was a golden candlestick representing the light of God. The structure stood in a courtyard surrounded by curtains as instead of pure linen. The courtyard contained a brazen altar of sacrifice and a basin for ceremonial washing. Every single piece of furniture, every color, every placement of furniture had significance. It had importance. It was symbolic of something relating to God. Well, when John says that the Word, by small things were made, became flesh and pitched His tent among us, what he is saying is that everything that is prefigured there in the tabernacle is fulfilled ultimately in Christ. He is our tabernacle. Now, what does that mean? Again, the tabernacle stood in the midst of the camp. The Israelites would be on the march, but when they came to camp, everybody camped around. That was the center of their communal life. So according to the book of Numbers, the tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun camped on the east side. Reuben, Simeon, and Gad camped on the south. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin camped on the west. The tribes of Dan, Asher, and Naphtali camped to the north. And the Levites, that is the priestly class, were the innermost camp. They camped directly around the tabernacle itself. So the tabernacle was the center of the camp. When John says, the word became flesh and pitched his tent in our midst, what he is saying is that for Christians, Christ is the new tabernacle. He is now the center of our life. He is the center of everything. You know, it's odd to me that sometimes you will go into a Christian church, a so-called Christian church, and you'll hardly ever hear the name Jesus. Years ago, this man is no longer there, but years ago when I became the rector of St. David's in Chiral, we had an 8 o'clock service. I mean, that's, you know, written in the Bible somewhere that you have to have an early service like that, an 8 or 8.15 service. And we had an 8 o'clock service. It was much smaller than the one we have here at St. Philip's. It was so small that everybody sat in the choir stalls. So we had the same kind of setup for the choir. It was cathedral-style seating. So the handful of people that came to that service, maybe 15, 20 people, would sit in the choir stalls. And I would stand in front of the altar and preach the homily or the sermon from there. So you're, you're really in their space. And about... Six months into my tenure there, this man, going out at the end of the service, grabs me by the arm and he says, i got to ask you a question. I said, what's that? He said, why are you always talking about Jesus? <laughs> I kid you not. That's exactly what he said. Why are you always talking about Jesus? He said, when I grew up in the Episcopal Church, we talked about God, but I never heard about Jesus. And unfortunately, that is too often the case. Jesus is mentioned in the liturgy, but the minister never does. God in a general term. The center of their communal life. We should never be ashamed to speak the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I think one of the reasons why people are uncomfortable, they're more comfortable talking about God than about Jesus, is because, well, God is sort of off their distance, but Jesus, now that's very personal. 
That's not merely a title, that's a name. And when you talk about names, that's talking about persons, and we get uncomfortable with that. But when John says Christ is our tabernacle, that's what he means. He means Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, is the center of our camp. He's the center of our communal life as the church, and he should be the center of our family life and the center of our personal life. That's what the tabernacle was. That's what Jesus Christ is. How did St. Patrick put it? Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ beside me, Christ beneath me, Christ within me. Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. Is Jesus Christ, I'm not asking about God now, I'm asking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word made flesh. Is He the center of your life? Does he tabernacle in the midst of your life? Something else about the tabernacle, we've already alluded to it at this point. The tabernacle was where the law of Moses was preserved. Again, you all recall that Moses received the Ten Commandments. He went up there on the mountain. Again, the mountain was cordoned off. Nobody was allowed to go near the mountain of God because God was there. He was holy. He was righteous. And what has Moses come down with? He comes down with the law. We're told his face was shining because he'd been in the presence of God. So much so that he had to veil it because the people couldn't look on him. It was like a reflection of the sun. And he comes down with the Ten Commandments, the first of which is this, you shall have no other gods before me. And what does he find the people doing down there? Worshiping the golden calf. So what had he done? Well, they had broken the first commandment before they'd ever received it. Incidentally, that is why the law can't save anybody. That's why preaching the law to anybody doesn't do anything except reveal the fact that they've broken it. That's the real function of the law. That's the primary function of the law. It's not to prevent us from sinning. It's to reveal the fact that we already have. When you tell a child, do not pull your sister's hair, you're not saying that to them because you think, well, he might just do it. You're telling him that because he's already done it. He's already pulled his sister's hair. So when you say, thou shalt not pull thy sister's hair, it doesn't prevent him from doing it. It simply reveals the fact that he already has. That's what the law does. So Moses comes down with the law. He finds that they've already violated the first commandment. They've already broken it. And in a fit of rage, he throws the tablets down, and they are broken, symbolic of the fact that that is what we do with the law. We cannot maintain it. We cannot keep it. We break it. But then, as I said, God made a covenant with his people. The tablets are refashioned, and they are placed here in the Ark of the Covenant for safekeeping. Symbol of God's presence, a reminder that God is holy. Did you know that of all the adjectives that are used in the Bible to describe God, and there are many of them, we think about God as being merciful. That's one of the things we say every Sunday, isn't it? My favorite prayer in the prayer book. The God whose property is always to have mercy. Not some of the time, not most of the time. He is the God whose property is always to have mercy. Now listen, for sinners, that's good news. So 
So we think of God as merciful, as loving, as long-suffering, all of those things. But of all the adjectives used to describe God in the Bible, the one that is used more than any other is holy. He is the Holy One. Now again, when you think of holy stuff, most of us think in terms of morality, don't we? I've said this before, we think of morality in terms of a scale. And you've got God way up here at the top, and you've got the devil way down at the bottom, and every single one of us, at one point, falls somewhere along that scale. Where are you on the scale? Well, most of us hope we're above the 50% mark. That's what we're hoping. Be honest, that's what you're hoping. But is 50% a, a passing mark? You know, down here toward the bottom, you've got people like Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Vladimir Putin, you know, all these people down here toward the bottom. And then you go a little bit further up, and you've got the mass of humanity, somewhere around the 50% mark. Most people think, well, we're basically good. Not perfect, but basically good. And then you go a little bit further up, and you've got the religious people, you know, People like us. <laughs> and, and then you go a little bit further up, and I always say you get Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, the clergy of St. Philip's. They're always up there toward the top, you know. And then God's right there at the very top. And what we fail to realize, that is not a biblical notion at all. God's not even on the scale. He is wholly other. Completely separate from us. And it requires perfection. Those of you who are in the Romans class this past week, we talked a little bit about this. You want to know how good you have to be in order to get into heaven? You want to earn your way into heaven? You want to do it your own way? You want to earn it? Let me tell you, I'm going to tell you exactly how good you want to be. How good you must be. Because Jesus tells us how good we have to be in order to get into heaven. If you're in any doubt, I'm going to disabuse you of your doubt right now. Here's how good you have to be. You have to be perfect. How perfect? As your Father in heaven is perfect. So you don't have to be just as good as Brian McGreevy or Bill Christian. I work with them. I can tell you it's not that. But it's got to be more than that. You've got to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You've got to be as good as God. Now, listen, even if you were able to do that from here on out, you all know you haven't done it up to this point. So you've already failed. And that's what the law was meant to represent. This is how good you must be. Which means there's no chance for any of us. None of us can get into the kingdom of God by virtue of our own efforts, by virtue of our own works. It's a lost cause. It's desperate. But there is one who has kept the law perfectly. Who is tempted in every way as we are, yet did not sin. And who came for the purpose of upholding the law. Jesus said, do not think I have come to abolish the law. Or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, I have come to fulfill them. 
everything in the law Jesus kept, and he kept it perfectly. How many of you have ever been to a mint? Visited the mint, like in Philadelphia, been to the mint. You know what happens when you, get, you go to the mint. They feed some sort of metal into the machine, an alloy, an alloy or silver, or sometimes it's a combination of things, and then you hear this big clump, and then hundreds of coins pour out into the basket. And every one of those coins, I'll allude to this again in the sermon today, every one of those coins is an exact representation. That's what Jesus Christ is. He is the exact representation of God, the exact image of the Father, and he has kept the law perfectly. So when John says he tabernacled in our midst, he means that Christ is the center of our camp. He means that Christ alone is the law keeper. He also means that the tabernacle was the place of meeting and revelation. And because of that, Christ can be trusted because he is the exact representation. You know, when you go to the there are those who are expert engravers who can actually tell when the coins come out which die was used to make the coin. Just by looking at it. And not only by looking at it, they can tell if the die is getting worn out. Because the coin should be an exact representation. That's what Jesus is. He is the place where the law is kept. He is also reveals the character, the nature of God. You know, I read an article just this morning uh, in the BBC about what's going on in the mind of Vladimir Putin. What's going on in the mind of this man, trying to understand what has happened, why he's here. Some people have said, well, he's mad. And most of the experts say he's not mad at all. If you go back and you look at this man over the course of the past 20 years that he's been in power, you begin to realize this has been the trajectory all along. But you're able to read the mind. That's what we want to do. Wouldn't you like to know the mind of God? Wouldn't you like to know who God is, what he is like, what pleases him? Well, the book of Hebrews says he is the radiance of the glory of God exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds by the word of his power after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the center of our camp. Jesus is the keeper of the law. Jesus is the place where we meet God and see him face to face. And the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh. In the Old Testament, that's where you went to meet God. You went to the tabernacle. You went into the presence of God. There was the Ark of the Covenant in that center, that, that innermost room, and between the outstretched wings of the seraphim, which sat on the top of the lid, there was this area, it was called the mercy seat, and it was where God was supposed to dwell symbolically with his people. Sometimes there was a light there. They called it the Shekinah glory, and it represented God's glory and his majesty, and that's where you went to meet the Lord. And you went there to meet the Lord as a mediator. But you see, you and I can meet the Lord face to face. The one thing that Moses could not do and live, we can do. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they met him face to face. On one occasion, Jesus was saying, let not your hearts be troubled. 
I'm going, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I'm going to come back. The section of John is called the farewell discourse. Some of the final words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before his crucifixion. And one of the disciples actually said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can you know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And we always stop there, but I'm going to say, how can you say, show us the Father? Because that's what they say. Well, then show us the Father, and we'll believe. Jesus said, how can you say, show me the Father? How long must I be with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is the place of meeting, the place of revelation. This is the place where sacrifices are made. It was in the tabernacle that all the sacrifices for sin were made. As I said, there was that altar that was burning constantly. Why did the Old Testament require a sacrificial system? To teach the people. To teach the people. You know, we have a tendency to think that sin is a little matter. It's a small matter. We're all sinners. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. Let me tell you something. Sin is no small matter to God. The wages of sin, Paul says, is death. Now, you say to yourself, well, how many sins do I have to commit before it's death? Only one. Only one. Be a big sin or a little sin. That's like asking the question, how rotten is rotten meat? A little bit of rot ruins the whole batch, doesn't it? The smallest amount of sin is deadly. The smallest amount, the wages of sin, is death. And that's what God was trying to teach his people. Look, sin is no small matter in God's eyes. One of the things that he said to Adam and Eve is, if you violate my covenant, if you eat of the tree of which I've told you you must not eat, you will die. You'll die spiritually, you'll die morally, you'll die physically. And we all do. None of us gets out of here alive. We all perish, we all die. And so those sacrifices were meant to remind people of the consequence of death. But it was a system that was merciful. Because what God would do is God would accept a substitute for us. God would allow an animal to be sacrificed on our behalf, and that animal would take our place. So every time the animal, now those of you who are animal lovers are thinking, that's terrible. It is meant to be terrible. It is meant to remind you of how terrible sin is. But instead of requiring our life, God will settle for an animal life and their blood will cover our sins. Uh, They did this in, in an interesting way in the ancient world. What you would happen is you would have two animals. One would be a lamb. And when you brought your lamb to be sacrificed for your sins, you would place your hand on the head of the lamb. Symbolic of the fact that you were transmitting your guilt to the animal. And then while your head is on the lamb's head, the priest would come and slit its throat. And its blood would pour out as a reminder that that's what you deserve for your sin, but God is accepting the sacrifice of an animal. And then there was another animal that was called the scapegoat. You've heard that expression? It would be sent off into the wilderness 
symbolic of the fact that your sins have now been put away. But I said the sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over again. Why? Because an animal life is not the same as a human life. At most, the blood of the animal covered our sin. It did not wash it away. Until Jesus Christ appeared on the scene and became, how did John the Baptist put it? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't just cover our sin, He washes it away. He becomes, tell me if these words sound familiar to you, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, never to be offered again. This is one of the differences, incidentally, between Roman Catholic theology of the Eucharist and Anglican theology of the Eucharist. In the Roman Catholic Church, they believe that every time the Mass is celebrated, Jesus is sacrificed all over again. They call it the sacrifice of the Mass. But in Anglicanism, we don't speak of the sacrifice of Christ all over again. We say a sacrifice of what? Praise and thanksgiving. Because he doesn't have to be sacrificed again. He was sacrificed once for all, and it was a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. In Jesus Christ, our sin has been dealt with. Incidentally, this is one of the reasons why, two things of significance, this is one of the reasons why when Jesus was crucified, a total number of miracles took place on Good Friday. The sky became darkened, you know, there was a great earthquake, one of the Roman centurions was converted at that moment, and we're told, most importantly, that the veil in the temple, which separated the holy place from the holy of holies, where the sacrifices were made, was torn from top to bottom. No longer are we cut out. No longer are we separated from God by our sins. Jesus has paid the full, perfect price for that. And that's when we say Jesus pitched his tent in our midst. That's what we mean. There's nothing you have to do in order to earn God's favor. Christ has done it all. He's kept the law. He's made the sacrifice. You can now meet him face Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure waters. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without waver, for he who promised is faithful. interesting thing about Jesus is as the tabernacle, he's not only the priest who makes the sacrifice, he's also the victim. That wasn't the true in the ancient world, was it? Jesus is both priest and victim. The tabernacle was the place where Israel worshipped. It was the center of their camp. It was the place where they went to meet God. It was the place of sacrifices. It was also the place where they worshipped. And I pointed out to you before, the word for worship means to apply worth or value. That's where they went. They worshipped at the temple. Well, if you think about it, Christ is where we worship. He is the center of our worship. 
He is the one to whom we give the glory. That's what John is saying here. And that one phrase, and he pitched his tent among us, he is saying, here in Jesus Christ, all that the Old Testament tabernacle represented has been fulfilled. You do not have to go to a special place in order to worship the Lord. Wherever Jesus is, where two or three are gathered, he That is a very important lesson for us when we think about the prospect of perhaps, maybe, we hope not, losing our buildings. The loss of the buildings is not the loss of everything that we Christians hold dear. Because let me tell you something, if the Spirit of the Lord departs from a building, it's nothing but an empty shell. It may be a beautiful shell, but it is an empty shell. You know, God did not spare the temple in Jerusalem, did he? Why should we think he would spare an American denomination? Because you didn't have to go to the temple anymore to find God. You didn't have to go to the temple anymore to have sacrifices made for sin. Did you ever notice that the Jews still come together at this place? The only section of the temple that remains standing. How many of you have been to the Holy Land? If you've been to Jerusalem, you have been to the Wailing Wall. Why is it called the Wailing Wall? Because the temple was destroyed in the year 70 AD, raised by the Romans under Titus. 100,000 people in Jerusalem put to the sword. The temple was completely destroyed. Jesus had said not one stone would be left standing upon another. The only part of the complex that is left is this outer retaining wall, and the Jews still go there today. And they weep, and they wail, and they pray for the Messiah to come. Why? So that they can meet God face to face. So that the law can be fulfilled. And so that the system of sacrifices can be reinstated. Do you understand that for a Jew, all of the sins, all of the transgressions of all the centuries since that point have been piling up and there is no way to deal with it? How many of you have ever been burdened by guilt? Anybody? It will crush you. It's guilt for what you did to your spouse or what you failed to do for your children or it's guilt because you took something that didn't belong to you or guilt you didn't measure up to your parents' expectations or whatever it is. It's guilt, it's shame, it's crushing. And the Jews have no way to deal with that because the place of sacrifice has been destroyed. But ah, for Christians, we don't have that. We can come to the one who is made flesh. We can see him face to face. And all the guilt, all the shame of all the centuries flowed together in his sacrifice there on the cross. And he took it all, the curse of the damned upon himself, that you and I might come to know God and behold his glory. Hallelujah. And the Word became flesh, and He pitched His tent in our midst, and we have come to know Him, whom to know is life everlasting. Let us pray.
Father, we give you thanks and praise for John chapter 1, verse 14, verse that's so familiar to us, but when we stop and ponder it, means so much. All our guilt, all our shame, not in part but the whole, was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. We thank you that everything the tabernacle prefigured, Jesus Christ fulfills. Grant us the grace to come to him, to meet him, to meet God face to face. To know that we do not have to try and measure up because he has done that on our behalf. To know that we can know him personally and know that he has paid the price in full for our transgressions. That the curtain might be torn in two. That we might become beloved children of God Almighty. Grant us the grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.